Dr. Lise Alshala will return to Australia to deliver her must-see seminar, Managing the Drivers of Cancer. The series will run in Australian capital cities from the 13th to the 24th of November, 2017. You can learn more about Lisa's comprehensive prevention and management strategies by attending this vital seminar. For more information, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me in the studio today is Belinda Reynolds, who's a dietitian with over 15 years' experience in the integrative medicine industry. She's an acclaimed senior educator with Bioceuticals who regularly presents to audiences throughout Australia and New Zealand, and she's known for her practical and easy style, bringing complex biochemical processes into an easily digestible format with practical clinical applications. Now today we're going to be discussing some concepts around autoimmunity, but I'd like to welcome Belinda back to FX Medicine. How are you, Belinda? I'm great, thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Now, autoimmunity, complex, horrible presentations in some instances, devastating to the patients. And I've got to say that medicine really doesn't have the the, the gold answers that we'd like. It, it, it's frustrating to, you know, the, these immune specialists, if you like, the rheumatologists and so, so forth, who deal with these sort of diseases. So let's discuss the premise of autoimmunity. What really are we talking about here? So generally with autoimmune diseases, there's over 80 different types of diseases which are currently classed as having an autoimmune component. And generally, uh, what would classify something as an autoimmune disease is the presence of autoantibodies um, in the in the circulation. Mm. So, and generally, if we look at the immune profile of an individual presenting with autoimmune disease, they tend to have a high expression of Th17, as opposed to, say, Th1 and, or Th2, which are commonly associated with inflammation and, and allergic diseases, respectively. Yep. Yep. Um, but I should say that there often is elevated levels of Th1 as well. Yeah, they the can be comorbid. Yes. These, these Th things, it used to be thought that it was a seesaw. It's not. It's Small not. swings and roundabouts. And That's right. Yeah. So it's um, the, the Th17, what it does is then um, see an increase in the release of certain pro or certain cytokines such as interleukin 17 and, and 22. Uh, and ultimately we see tissue destruction. And as a result of that, we get the initiation of, of inflammation, the release of NF-kappa-B, um, which sees a variety of different downstream effects, uh, which can contribute to worsening of symptoms and um, the progression of the disease state. So uh, what you tend to also see is a suppression in regulatory T cells. Yeah. Um, and they're generally considered to assist the body in maintaining immune tolerance. So in the absence of healthy levels of regulatory T cells, that's when the immune system can, I guess, go a little bit crazy mm. and um, lead to all of the, the symptoms which tend to be associated with these illnesses. But the, the converse of this is that there are patients with rheumatoid factor out there that don't have, for instance, rheumatoid arthritis. So that to me says that there's got to be other uh, coinciding, if you like, factors 
um, even if you say the word entourage, um, that then says no, you're going to get an autoimmune disease. Mm, it's it's very complicated and. I should start by saying that there, we definitely don't have all the answers and I'm not suggesting I have all the, all the answers at all. <laughs> I it's, don't think anybody does. No, it's, um, but what we're going to look at today is more just uh, understanding a little bit about some of the research that's being done behind the scenes to understand um, the numerous different factors that can be potentially contributing to the increased risk of autoimmune disease development and therefore what we might consider in terms of uh, interventions whether it be dietary, lifestyle or nutritional supplementation, uh, in order to assist in rebalancing the imbalances in, in T-cells and cytokines which have been observed in, in these patients. So uh, a lot of the, the research is still in its in vitro and, and animal um, sort of stages. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not a great deal on big numbers of, of humans in terms of the which, research. Which but is weird and, and sadly needed. It, it is definitely just to sort of help get a better understanding of, of how effective these things can be. But at the same time, understanding how complex the development of autoimmune diseases can be, uh, I don't think there's ever going to be one magic bullet. So yes, there's some really promising research in uh, humans with multiple sclerosis um, using high doses of alpha-lipoic acid for improving the um, cytokine, cytokine sorry, profile in these patients, mm. but um, understanding how complex and how many different factors can potentially be contributing to the MS development and the worsening of the symptoms and the disease progression, uh, you need to be addressing all of those factors and it will vary from person to person. So um, I think it's definitely got to be a functional medicine and personalised approach yeah. uh, rather than thinking that there will be one magic answer. I, I think that's the key to integrative medicine is that if you're looking at population medicine, then orthodox medicine has the answer for that because mm -hmm. you're dealing with large groups of people. But what about those people who present to the doctor and saying, it didn't work, I'm mm. still sick. These are the people who need more different approaches. Now, you know, orthodox medicine only has certain um, black boxes, if you like, quite rigid guidelines for what it does and doesn't do. And that's where the personalised medicine comes in to say, well, what's happening with you, Mrs. Jones? Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, no, I, that, that to me is the beauty of natural medicine approach. And I, I agree. And, you know, some people do achieve some some benefit and good benefit from uh, the pharmaceutical medications yeah. they've been prescribed. And what's actually great is when you look at some of the, the research that's being done using certain nutritional interventions like lipoic acid and selenium for patients with uh, multiple sclerosis or autoimmune thyroiditis, yep. uh, a lot of these studies are done administering the nutrient in conjunction with yeah. the standard adjunct. therapy. Yeah. So it's good to know that uh, we're not necessarily saying that this needs to be an alternative to what they're using. It can be something that's safely prescribed together with uh, the standard treatment. And that to me is one of the, the biggest travesties of medicine when they blame this. They have this ignorant, and it is ignorant, where they judge natural medicine as being alternative, as, as if people are rejecting orthodox approaches. Mm. That to me is not the way, certainly with more serious diseases. It's mm. irresponsible to do that. Um and to me, the beauty is, as you say, it's when the marriage happens. Mm -hmm. I just wish that there would be this, this is as far as I can do. Let's see if we can improve it by using some of these non-proven 
um, you know, theoretical perhaps, or, or at least with a, a smaller amount of evidence. Let's see if we can, you know, crawl a little bit further up the hill to wellness. Mm, I agree. It def- definitely should be a, a complementary uh, and integrated approach, not necessarily an alternative one. In saying that, though, some people do choose to go down the, the alternative path if yeah. they've experienced any, say, negative side effects from and uh, little to no benefit from the interventions uh, they've been prescribed, but that's up to the the patient. Uh, it's not what I'd encourage necessarily. No. Um, but I think the important thing too is to understand that yes, there's generally always a genetic factor when it comes to autoimmune disease risk. There is definitely a, a genetic factor, but um, that on its own is not enough to explain why an autoimmune disease develops in a mm-hmm. person. Mm. There needs to generally uh, be some sort of trigger. So um, it's that whole the genetics load the gun, environment pulls the trigger. Uh, and what science is still trying to do at the moment is understand what those triggers are. And there's a couple of immune autoimmune-like diseases where we uh, very clearly understand what the trigger is. So celiac disease is often mm-hmm. uh, used as an example of that. Um, it may not necessarily be a true autoimmune disease, but it certainly has an autoimmune-like profile. And this is interesting, but it will yeah. let you go. Sorry. <laughs> um, so with celiac disease, we know the trigger is gluten. Uh, remove gluten from the diet and the symptoms subside. So I guess what we're trying to understand with all of the other autoimmune diseases is what is the trigger for these? And when you start looking at the research, there's a number of different theories and they all could be correct for different individuals. So, for example, we know that a vitamin D deficiency is associated with an increased risk of developing autoimmune disease, but having a vitamin D deficiency doesn't mean you'll develop one and having an autoimmune disease doesn't necessarily mean you are vitamin D deficient. So that's where we need to treat the patient, assess for a vitamin D deficiency and correct that vitamin D status if it is, uh, if that person is deficient. Uh, What research has also found is that uh, in women of childbearing age, they looked at levels of mercury in the body and uh, associated that with the the risk of having autoantibodies. Mm -hmm. And they found that at doses, even that which is considered safe of methylmercury in the body, uh, there was a significantly increased risk and it stood out as the major risk factor for developing uh, autoantibodies. And so we know that heavy metal toxicity is likely to play a role. Uh, But there's also evidence suggesting that certain infection types can potentially be a trigger Mm. um, or a um, contributing factor Mm. to the development of um, certain autoimmune diseases as well. So there's Epstein-Barr virus or EBV, H. pylori, candidiasis, chlamydia, uh, hepatitis C, herpes simplex, there's um, Klebsiella, there's a huge range of um, infections that are thought to trigger the autoimmune process. Which is interesting to me, it's not one bug. No. You know, there's some work done by um, Professor Alan Ebringer, and he was talking about cross-reactivity with a certain one bug. Uh, you know, I think it was Klebsiella with re- ankylosing spondylitis mm-hmm. and Proteus species with uh, rheumatoid arthritis, but it's much wider than that. Um What's interesting to me is that it's an immune-mediated response that is aberrant, that mm-hmm. is that is triggering something wrong, 
And that to me is very interesting. It's like, where does it go wrong? Yeah. I couldn't help when you're talking about interleukin-17. I'm champing at the bit here going, segmented filamentous bacteria. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just so interested by that work by Dan Littman and Ivalio Ivanov um, as a primer. But again, as you say, it needs something else. Mm -hmm. And that something else is when you wipe out good bugs. And so here we get back to the gut. Mm -hmm. So, and the, the gut definitely plays a huge role. I mean, just understanding the fact that eighty to ninety percent of our total immune tissue exists within the mucosal associated lymphoid tissue of the mm. of the gut. Um, and what we also understand now too is that when there is hyperpermeability or leakiness of the intestinal tract. We get an increased passage of macromolecules, and that can include um, endotoxins such yep. as lipopolysaccharides or LPS um, that exist on the cell wall of gram-negative bacteria, and that can elicit an immune response. And uh, generally, there's the the gut cells open and close to allow things through all the time. Yeah. It's it's when these sort of sit open for an unusually long period of time that there's that constant uh, initiation of an, an immune response. Yeah. And what's interesting is the type of immune response which is initiated by the LPS um, is a TH17-driven one. So TH17 tends to respond to extracellular uh, infections. So ah, right. in, and I think that's where the concept of intermittent fasting comes from as well for individuals with autoimmune and inflammatory illnesses is that uh, if you can minimise the periods through which you're consuming food and I guess... Antigenic load. Yes. So every time you eat, you're basically bombarding your body with oh, potentially um, harmful things and pro-inflammatory products. And uh, there is that opening and closing of the tight junctions, which are allowing passage of things um, through the gut wall. So, And when certain people with a certain genetic predisposition, predisposition sorry, <laughs> consume uh, gluten, the, the opening of those tight junctions um, persists for... Uh, a much longer period of time. Right. I think it's, don't quote me, but it was around, it's around half an hour for most individuals. Um, but for those that have the increased zonulin expression due to gluten consumption based on their genetics, uh, it the gut wall can stay open uh, for about four hours. Uh, and so if someone's regularly consuming gluten throughout the day, their their gut is open and leaky for, for much of the day, every day. And as a result, you're getting that uh, mild passage of the LPS into the body. And over time, that becomes a chronic um, initiation of a stress response, which leads to inflammation, which then causes oxidative stress, which initiates NF-kappa B release and then a downstream inflammatory response mm. as a result of that. And so it's really important when we have patients presenting with an autoimmune illness, we need to look at vitamin D status, yes. We also need to consider if there is a, a heavy, heavy metal toxicity which is contributing to the oxidative stress and inflammation and, um, I guess, mitochondrial dysfunction and things. But we also need to consider the presence of, of leaky gut because uh, that could certainly be one of the drivers of the 
uh, disease development. So it may not necessarily have been what set it off in the first place, but it could certainly be contributing to, to their symptoms. And by healing up the gut and potentially removing gluten if it's indicated, uh, that could really help to minimise the symptoms and slow disease progression. Mm. Um, a paper that comes to mind when you're talking about the man who had a, a, who I had a bromance with at the <laughs> 2016 symposium, and that's um, Dr. Alessio Fasano. Yes. Um, so this is in Current Opinion in Gastroenterology. It's a bit of an older paper now, 2006, but it's Systemic Autoimmune Disorders in Celiac Disease. So it's talking about the association of other um, comorbid um, mm. Uh, uh, autoimmune disorders alongside the immune-mediated disorder of celiac disease, which I used to think it was an autoimmune disease. I just used to classify mm. that. It just seems that we're teasing apart these sort of differences now. Um, you know, there's a few others, uh, other disorders that were in there. But anyway, um, very interesting paper. One thing that just twigged my interest then is that you spoke about vitamin D a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. And... I just wondered about the point of vitamin A as well as the yes. sort of yin and yang um, with uh, immune regulation of the gut. And, you know, on a population basis, we'd say, oh, but we don't have vitamin A deficiency in Australia. That's true in normal people. Mm -hmm. But what if you've got malabsorption syndrome? What if you've got, you know, excessive uh, devastation or destruction of the, the villi and microvilli of the gut so that you can't absorb fat-soluble vitamins. There goes your inflammatory regulation. And I think, too, uh, definitely a lot of the carotenoids act as pro-vitamin A and can be converted to vitamin A. However, it's it's not done very efficiently yeah. in the body, and particularly if you have concurrent case, yeah. deficiencies um, such as zinc. Zinc deficiency is known to negatively impact the carotenoid to vitamin A conversion. And if someone has leaky gut, that tends to be associated with uh, zinc deficiency as well. Um, so d vitamin A definitely needs to be considered. I think uh, we all are very familiar with vitamin D playing that role in mm. uh, immune modulation, but vitamin A seems to be underappreciated. It's the paranoid I think, at the vitamin. Moment. Yes, well, we're all fearful of it because of its terrific. Even in men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, it's, it's like it, it, it had this name for causing birth defects. I searched the literature years ago in Australia, like the actual warnings, and there was one. Mm. And that was not with vitamin A, it was with freeze dried liver extract. Right. On the TGA website. Mm. I have it. Um, 2005. Um, so notwithstanding that higher doses may well be teratogenic, the World Health Organization... Oh, two high doses of anything is not true, recommended, really. <laughs> Sorry, not may well. They yeah. are teratogenic. Yeah. But I note that the International Vitamin A Con Consultation Group of World Health Organization, so IVAG, um, they state on their vitamin A uh, paper um, that... A pregnant woman who at any stage of pregnancy, regardless of existing status, can have 10,000 IU quite safely. Mm -hmm. Now, that's IU, not retinol equivalent. So you divide that by 3.3, 3, I 3, think. 3,000. Yeah, mm. 3,300. Um, but it, it just, I, I think we've got to get, uh, look at responsible use and mm -hmm. required use, um, reasonable use, but without being um, flippant in its in the dosages. And even dietary intake as well. There was yeah. a, there was an interesting paper which uh, looked at how we can, through dietary means, enhance carotenoid uptake and then also enhance the conversion to vitamin A. And it found that um, 
the the consumption of avocado together with carrot oh. uh, significantly increased uh, the uptake of the carotenoids from the carrot and also significantly increased the conversion of those carotenoids to vitamin A. So it was uh, 6.6 times the increase of carotenoids were achieved through concurrent wow. consumption with the avocado. And then it was a 12.6-fold increase in the conversion of that carotenoid to uh, vitamin A. Right. And it was measured by retinol esters. So uh, smashed avo with grated carrot on top. Yeah. Don't know how that'll well, go in there. <laughs> well, I even um, use just mash up avocado and use it as a, a dip, like for with carrot sticks. And, you know, that's a way to um, achieve uh, improved vitamin A mm. status, but also understanding all of the other benefits that particularly avocado has uh, for health, particularly with the provision of the essential fatty acids, also the fiber. Um, it can be very beneficial. So it's always good to look at the the ways that you can improve that that nutritional status through and, the diet. And you do it at 12 p.m. so that you're getting enough vitamin D on your skin. <laughs> <laughs> sit, sit out in the sun and, <laughs> for five and eat minutes, it. <laughs> just for five minutes eating <laughs> avocado with carrot sticks. Um, but, uh, but yeah, with, with vitamin A, just to sort of um, clarify the, the roles that it plays. So it's essential for secretory IgA, um, release. And secretory IgA is really important mm. at the gut level, not only because of it playing a, a role in the, the first line of defence and protection against um, mucosal-related infections, but it also, um, by protecting the underlying immune cells, like the, the, the dendritic cells, for example, from exposure to uh, a lot of antigens, it can help with reducing the unnecessary or inappropriate activation of the the immune response. So it helps to uh, assist in maintaining a more tolerogenic type uh, immune system. So via that mechanism, the vitamin A can assist in uh, providing immune modulation benefits, but it's also been shown to help with bringing down Th1 and Th17, mm -hmm. uh, but also increasing uh, the release of regulatory T cells as well. So it definitely um, provides those benefits that we're looking for in terms of improving that, that immune profile. So we're looking at, obviously, gut... Um immune response mechanisms, mm -hmm. and secretory IgA is the hero. So most natural health practitioners would immediately think about probiotics and fibres yes. and things like that. Definitely. Can you take our listeners through a few of those that you might use as interventions, at least to, you know, to hopefully dampen down that immune response? So first of all, the Saccharomyces boulardii is uh, one of the, the key uh, beneficial microorganisms, which are known to stimulate uh, an increased secretory IgA uh, production. So it can definitely be one of the, the first things that can mm. be utilised. And I guess taking into account what else might be going on, say if there is uh, persistent candidiasis, which is potentially initiating an, an inappropriate type or persistent immune response, mm -hmm. uh, the the Saccharomyces boulardii can also be useful in assisting in, in addressing that infection too. It's It works very competitively uh, against uh, the adherence of candida to the intestinal wall and also through its increased production of secretory IgA that it stimulates, it can help the body in more effectively uh, addressing any uh, 
potential infection at the gut level. So the interesting thing with Saccharomyces boulardii as well is that it also has trophic effects too, which help with uh, improving intestinal integrity, uh, but also via its ability to improve the health of the brush border uh, and reducing local inflammation, it enhances the disaccharide enzyme release too. So that assists in uh, alleviating certain uh, food type intolerances such as uh, mild lactose intolerance that could be secondary to gut inflammation. Oh, absolutely. So yeah. uh, it would be one of the first things I'd think about. But then it's also very important to recolonize the gut with uh, beneficial microorganisms. Uh, with the Saccharomyces boulardii, it's yeast that's non-commensal. Mm. So it will move on through and, and out. Uh, in the, the research that they did with patients taking Saccharomyces boulardii, within three to five days of ceasing supplementation, it was gone. So it moves through. Does its, provides its benefits and, and passes out. So what you also need to do is uh, look to recolonize uh, following that. And so uh, really high doses of lots of different types of beneficial microorganisms can assist in restoring that microbial diversity, which is so essential for uh, healthy digestive function. And the provision of prebiotics is essential as well. So currently we're limited to what different strains we're able to produce it a, in a commercial way for um, to be encapsulated and sold as a supplement. So although what we have is incredibly beneficial in terms of probiotic supplements, uh, we still are limited. So it's very important to provide prebiotics, which assist in feeding all of those other microorganisms in the gut um, that are essential or very beneficial for our health. Uh, and that then too assists us in uh, increasing the benefit we can get from the probiotics because uh, it's via their fermentation of prebiotic fibres that the probiotics will provide a lot of their benefits and that's through particularly the production of certain short-chain fatty acids. Uh, butyrate, for example, mm. is particularly uh, beneficial for uh, supporting gut integrity. It's one of the primary uh, fuel sources used by the colonocytes, so it's very good for uh, supporting uh, gut healing. Uh, glutamine, of course, too, is very important for the You've got to use a lot of glutamine, though, right? Uh, pretty high doses, so gram doses yeah. is really important. Uh, and the, the other short-chain fatty acids that are produced by the probiotics too, they all help to maintain an environment that is ideal for the, the growth of beneficial organisms and helps to deter some of those um, potentially pathogenic type organisms as well. The, traditionally, you know, you mentioned zinc before, mm -hmm. you know, like in a, in a, a gut-mediated inflammatory disorder, I would very often start with like a liquid zinc. We, we used to make it in the pharmacy where I used to work. Mm -hmm. um, but now there are these forms of zinc on the Australian market that have much better sort of absorption, particularly to inflamed sites like zinc carnosine. Mm. And it r greatly interests me this. Um, you know, it's, I think it's hallmark use, if you like, is in things like um, as an adjunct to helicobacter treatment, but also with um, gastroesophageal reflux to settle down the inflammation. But I, I haven't looked at any of its use in potentially um, lower gastrointestinal disorders. Ever heard of anything at all? Not in the... I've What I've seen is similar to what, what you've seen in terms of the, the H. pylori, the dyspepsia, ulceration. Mm. Uh, mm. That's mostly what I've seen. A lot of the the evidence around uh, the zinc improving the functioning of tight 
junction uh, proteins um, generally has looked at other forms of zinc, but I would imagine that considering the antioxidant and anti-inflammatory uh, benefit of that zinc carnosine complex, mm. uh, I would expect that you'd also um, achieve good results there. I'd just as be well. I'd be very interested. Like I think I've got this right in that the carnosine appears to anchor it. Uh, anchor yes, the complex so there. that the zinc can be used to heal an mm. inflamed site. So it'd be interesting to see um, mm. what its utility would be in, you know, lower bowel disorders. Because, uh, yeah, it definitely does seem to hang around there longer. And what's interesting to even skipping across to pyrroles where they suggest that with elevations in pyrroles where there's often a zinc and vitamin B6 deficiency due to that increased loss, the, the increased losses through the urine yep. uh, and the resultant increased in gut permeability and then the greater passage of the pyrroles into the body, the greater than loss of zinc. Uh, one um, hypothesised um, beneficial way of supplementing with zinc is to give a poorly absorbed <laughs> form of zinc right. so that it, it is used locally. Right. Uh, but I guess, too, even if you do have a zinc that's well absorbed, the blood that the zinc is in well, still your body compartmentalizes zinc, and this is so, the whole issue with measurement. Mm. You know, you measure it in the serum; doesn't tell you how much is in your toe. So um, maybe, mm. yeah, <laughs> maybe. it'd be interesting. <laughs> Look, I, I think the whole thing is there may not be level A one evidence on this, in, but it's something where your patient is in dire need of help, and you try something that yes. that might work. And that the good thing is, is that these things, as long as they're prescribed responsibly and the practitioner always considers the potential interactions with any drugs the patient might be on, uh, as long as those things are addressed, uh, these don't do any harm. So, And they're generally quite cost-effective yeah. as well. Yeah, so, very cheap. Yeah, so I think it definitely doesn't hurt to try because mm. if it doesn't work, you've lost nothing. Yeah. Um, but if it does, well, fantastic. Well, you've got to be quite silly. Anybody has to be really silly chronically with zinc for it to cause long-term ill effects like, you know, copper, uh, copper deficiency mm. and cardiomyopathy. You've got you know, 150 milligrams plus yes. for months. And it um, can often will cause nausea before you yeah, can go you, too you high. Yeah, like I challenge many people to take that much for that long. Mm. Um, 150 milligrams, if you look at the research, that's a lot. That is a lot, yes. Um, I've gone up to 100, but short term, mm. you know, two months, maybe. Maybe. But I think it's very interesting. You you mentioned something just before regarding B6 and zinc. And obviously mm -hmm. they, these two nutrients um, are involved in many, many enzyme systems, zinc, B6, magnesium, um, and particularly those which govern hormone uh, control, synthesis, even detoxification, mm -hmm. biotransformation. So can you take us through the relevance of hormones in autoimmune disease, or I might even say autoimmune-like diseases, because it's really interesting that diseases that I was brought up on, that is an autoimmune, they're na celiac disease. They're now saying it's an immune-mediated autoimmune-like disease. Mm. And it's you the same know? cardiovascular disease, yeah. PCOS even. They're even suggesting there's an autoimmune-type driver there, um, but don't necessarily fit into the classical definition. Yeah, like rheumatoid arthritis disease. appears to be a classic autoimmune disease. Mm. Um, MS is still classified as an, mm -hmm. an autoimmune disease, yes? Yes. Right. And even Hashimoto's and Graves because there's clear presence of certain uh, antibodies right. in, 
in the Ah, that's interesting. Yeah. See, I thought Hashimoto's was an inflammatory thing that had autoimmune like. This is this confusion. I don't mm. get it. Yeah. I think so, there's so much to be done. <laughs> I'm sure we'd find evidence to say that you're right and, <laughs> and I'm right too. Yeah, and vice versa, so. <laughs> I can tell you that, the research that you do. So so let's go into hormones because that you know Let's pick on estrogen. Yes. It's it's the proliferative hormone. That's Mm -hmm. its job. But when it's, let's say, mismanaged by the body uh, or given the opportunity to do aberrant actions, it can have deleterious effects on health. So can you take us through some of these drivers and and, and where, I guess, hormones, various hormones, not just estrogen, um, are implicated in autoimmune disease? Sure. So uh, it's definitely um, found that women have a, a greater risk of autoimmune disease development. And so there has been a lot of research conducted into trying to identify what it is that make women more susceptible to the development of these diseases. Mm. And so there's a few interesting um, hypotheses out there uh, that haven't necessarily been proven, but they're definitely interesting to consider. Uh, One of them is the fetal microchimerism, where uh, during pregnancy the fetus shares its cells with the mother and and vice versa to sort of say, look, this is me. Yep. Don't let your immune system attack me. (laughs) Um, However, those cells persist uh, long after birth. And so with each subsequent pregnancy, a woman has an increasing number of, I guess, foreign DNA within her tissues. The fetal stuff in her, right. So, uh, for example, in in one situation, I think they were uh, conducting autopsies on uh, boys who uh, had type 1 diabetes Mm. and they uh, were looking at their, their pancreas and they found that they found XX chromosomes within some of the cells in, in the pancreas, and there was the wow. the hypothesis that it was the body, um, due to some sort of trigger, uh, the immune system's uh, checks and balances, I guess, became uh, uh, in insufficient mm. to prevent the immune system from attacking that foreign, I guess you would say, uh, DNA so within could, their tissues. Could, could this be why they were looking at milk as a possible trigger? If, if I think about the intake of beta casein mm. from non-Jersey cow milk, um, that it could then have a dysregulatory effect of T helper cells in the gut, inflammatory cytokines being produced, which then react with the chimeric mm. Chromosomes in the pancreas. There's a long shot. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew's hypothesis. (laughs) It's definitely worth considering. Um, It's, yes, I mean, looking deeper into um, the research that was around, it's it's definitely not something that that's proven and that mm. they've uh, confirmed to be a mm. definite contribution. I think there was even some evidence that suggested that, no, it's not the immune system targeting uh, that DNA. Yeah. Um, but it's an interesting thing to Andrew's consider. hypothesis out yeah. the window. <laughs> uh, and the, the other thing is, I guess, the hormonal balances within uh, or imbalances that can occur within women. So uh, there's some interesting research around looking at hyperprolactinemia Mm -hmm. as a uh, potential trigger for autoimmune attacks or uh, periods of of worsening in the symptoms. Exacerbation, yeah. And that is because 
prolactin is considered to be more stimulatory for the immune system and more pro-inflammatory. But it's interesting because there's also evidence to the contrary, which suggests prolactin could be beneficial uh, for MS. Uh, Animal studies have been done on that. So I guess what you'd probably need to do is take a step back and look at, well, what is it that would have been contributing to the hyperprolactinemia? So maybe it's that it's a bystander that there's that association, but not necessarily um, a causation of that so high prolactin. Just quickly thinking about that, I just note that prolactin inhibiting hormone, the other name for that, is dopamine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one would automatically assume that you know lack of dopamine equals stress, yes. equals high prolactin. But if you're looking at this stuff, giving prolactin in animals who are not otherwise stressed, then maybe that cytokine milieu isn't there. Yeah. Maybe it's just one of the one of the branches, one of the keys, not the key. Mm. This is the problem with research when you look at one thing, isn't it? Yes, well, yeah. that that's right. And I, I think um, understanding what else happens with hyperprolactinemia often, you tend to have an imbalance with progesterone and estrogen in that situation as well. Uh, like you said, stress generally is a big contributing factor to that. But also what tends to happen when you have elevations in prolactin, one of the consequences can be that there is a, a, a compromised uh, health of the corpus luteum or the quality of the corpus luteum is compromised due to imbalances in FSH and LH. Right. Uh, and as a result, because the corpus luteum is normally responsible for pumping out progesterone during the luteal phase to maintain that, that lining that's been developed uh-huh. um, to facilitate conception and implantation, uh, what you tend to get is an insufficient release of progesterone and that can contribute to a shortened luteal phase or yep. breakthrough bleeding that also can compromise uh, conception. Um, and But knowing that progesterone is considered to be anti-inflammatory and, in a sense, immunosuppressive, uh, it could be the, the, the stress and the progesterone depletion that is contributing um, more so to the, the worsening effects or the, or the worsened symptoms of autoimmune diseases as opposed to the, the high prolactin yep. itself. Wow. Uh, and what's interesting too is that understanding the role toxicity plays mm in uh, causing or contributing to autoimmune disease risk. Uh, Progesterone, when depleted, whether that be due to high prolactin, chronic stress, uh, progesterone is essential for uh, the functioning of the pregnant extraceptor, which is involved in uh, detecting the presence of toxins and stimulating the expression of uh, certain other proteins such as NRF2, which when activated, uh, initiates a number, of, a number of the cellular antioxidant and detoxification defence mechanisms within a cell. So uh, indirectly, <laughs> depleted progesterone can significantly compromise mm. uh, healthy detoxification and antioxidant systems within the cell, leaving someone more vulnerable to the toxins and things in their environment that they may have otherwise been. And then if you combine that with genetic susceptibility, some other nutritional deficiencies, microbial imbalance, leaky gut, uh, uh, an infection that could trigger the immune system, it could be all of those things contributing. The perfect storm. Yes. Yeah. So apart from uh, medical practitioners being able to prescribe levels of hormones as a band-aid, and I underline that word, um, to if you like supplement, use a hormone as a supplement, 
a natural hormone, as in a bioidentical hormone. What other natural ways can we support the the normal production and indeed the normal detoxification of these hormones? So generally, uh, if you're looking at high prolactin um, and low progesterone as a result of that, um, Vitex, interestingly, has shown uh, some evidence to be beneficial. The actives in Vitex combine dopamine receptors, helping to bring down those elevations in prolactin, ultimately improving uh, corpus luteum quality and therefore uh, assisting healthy progesterone and estrogen levels uh, during the luteal phase. So there's some early research which is suggesting that to be of benefit. Uh, furthermore, supporting the uh, activation of things such as NRF2 can assist in uh, healthy activation of the detoxification and antioxidant defence mechanisms within a cell. And there's a huge number of different things that have been found to assist in in activating NRF2. And, and that can include things such as uh, turmeric, uh, like a lot of the compounds that we consider potent anti-inflammatories and antioxidants. It seems to be via this NRF2 activation that they're providing a lot of their benefits. So I uh, think cumin, also resveratrol, uh, and interesting, the nutrients too, such as uh, alpha-lipoic acid, selenium, even glutathione, uh, sulforaphane, and a number of different um, antioxidant and natural compounds tend to be be quite useful. Uh, intermittent fasting seems to be beneficial for activating that as well. Um, so I'd consider all of those things. And what's interesting too is that we know that dark green leafy vegetables provide beneficial ingredients such as the, the dim. And not only is it assisting in healthy metabolism of estrogen, uh, but dim has also been found to interact with the aryl hydrocarbon receptor mm. at the gut level um, and helping to regulate then how the body responds to toxins and helping to regulate the inflammatory immune reaction that the body would have uh, when exposed to certain toxins. So um, those dark green leafy vegetables are, are very, very important um, for assisting not only healthy uh, hormone metabolism but also ensuring uh, protection against the ill effects of toxins in the environment. This is obviously a huge topic uh, and what you've covered today is really <laughs> seriously the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. There's so much more to uncover. Um, but what other, what other things can you enlighten us with that just might give us a few more little hints and tips with regards to autoimmune or autoimmune type disorders. I mean, thyroid, you mentioned that earlier. Yes. So uh, looking at thyroid conditions, so of course, there's graves where you have the hyperthyroidism and Hashimoto's where there's hypo, but individuals with Hashimoto's can swing to hyper as well. Mm. Uh, interestingly, although they have very different presentations, the underlying uh, contributing factors tend to be very similar. Mm. And they generally have that same imbalance within the their immune profile uh, with insufficient regulatory T cells, high Th17, Th1 and, and the inflammation that results. And so uh, what's interesting is that one of the key nutrients that have been researched in uh, particularly Graves' disease is selenium. So at doses of 100 micrograms twice daily, it's been used to assist with uh, reducing the orbitopathy orbitopathy yep, that's right. <laughs> associated with Graves' disease where there's that, um, the 
increased the the fat accumulation sort of behind the eye, which can lead to the protrusion of the eyes. Uh, but it was also shown in those studies to assist with uh, slowing the progression of the disease itself. And selenium plays a number of important roles in the body, um, but one of its key roles is as um, an important cofactor for glutathione peroxidase. So glutathione really can't provide its antioxidant benefits if there is insufficient selenium to ensure uh, healthy levels of glutathione peroxidase to allow the reduced glutathione to do its job. So if you have insufficient selenium, that compromises the glutathione, the universal antioxidant's ability to do its job. And and as a result, you can get increased um, oxidative stress and resultant inflammation occurring. You also have uh, compromised detoxification mechanisms as well. Uh, But what is also interesting too is that selenium is essential for the deiodination enzymes involved in converting T4 to the active thyroid hormone T3. So not only is it indicated in graves, but it also can be indicated in uh, underactive of the thyroid as well, mm. if there's particularly if there's low T3. I, um, I remember that a paper being reviewed by Professor Creswell Eastman, and the paper was by Drutel, D-R-U-T-E-L et al. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's quite interesting that the uh, important role selenium status can certainly play uh, in ensuring uh, the health of individuals with uh, thyroid uh, conditions. But we also need to consider other factors too. So uh, what's interesting, uh, we were talking about the relationship between uh, certain hormonal imbalances, particularly in females and autoimmune disease. And there's definitely a close relationship between polycystic ovarian syndrome and Hashimoto's. Ah. Uh, They tend to coexist quite quite frequently. And uh, looking at the research around that, there's some interesting uh, evidence emerging around the use of myo-inositol and aflopoic acid in those situations. So not only does the the myo-inositol act as a, a second messenger for the thyroid hormone at the cellular level to improve the functioning of thyroid hormone, uh, but it also does this a similar action for assisting healthy insulin function so it can improve glycemic control, making it beneficial for thyroid underactivity and for um, PCOS patients presenting with um, poor glycemic control or hyperinsulinemia. And then with considering the role that the alpha-lipoic acid plays in assisting insulin function and and, uh, carbohydrate metabolism, it can be beneficial for the PCOS sufferers, but has also been shown to be useful in the uh, autoimmune type situations. Uh, But also via its ability to uh, assist with providing antioxidant benefits, uh, it's also been shown to assist with uh, preventing the imbalance between T3 and reverse T3. Ah. So uh, it's because there's a, a theory that when the body is in a there's a lot of inflammation and oxidative stress. The body intentionally produces more reverse T3 uh, because it believes it that down. we need to suppress the metabolism yeah. to reduce the production of those um, oxidative stresses yeah. or, um, or free radicals. Mm. And so by addressing that inflammation, um, particularly in the liver, uh, the lipoic acid is suggested to help with uh, a 
attenuating that increased reverse T3 synthesis, which can be working at, at uh, blocking or acting as an antagonist at the T3 receptor sites. Uh, and then looking at autoimmune disease in itself, uh, aflopoic acid has been shown to assist in reducing the, the tissue injury that can occur as a result of increased LPS passage and the inflammation that causes. So um, it's definitely an interesting nutrient to consider uh, for uh, autoimmune type situations and anything associated with poor glycemic control. The other thing I was going to mention too is that aflopoic acid plays a role in helping to ensure healthy glutathione levels yeah. as well. So due to its role in assisting in recycling cysteine, uh, it helps to improve availability of, of cysteine for glutathione synthesis. And it also plays a role in regenerating a number of different other antioxidants. So it plays quite a pivotal role in the body. Mm. There is some... Underutilised. Yeah, yeah. And it is quite... In terms of looking at the research on MS, they used around 1,200 milligrams and they chose that dose uh, based on the serum levels they'd achieved in animals to achieve the results that they um, they found quite impressive. They then looked at what doses they needed to give a human yeah. to achieve the same serum levels and that came out at 1,200 milligrams and they did administer it with food uh, to reduce the risk of gastric upset as a result of the high doses they were using. Uh, but in terms of looking at uh, thyroid-type conditions and PCOS, the doses used were around 400 to 800 milligrams and that was a racemic mix that right. we used in those studies. Right. Yeah, most of the research is still the um, RS lipoic yes. acid, even though there may be some benefits of the R form, I get mm -hmm. it, but the human research is showing that the RS works. Yes. Um, so it's like, well, you know, you can, <laughs> it's kind of like, well, you know, we, we also had pyridoxine hydrochloride, so <laughs> it's like, um, yes. so I've got to say, I feel like a dunce. I've got to say, there's so much to learn. There um, is. We seriously have only skimmed the, the skin off the apple with this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, I mean, look, we definitely are nowhere near having, having all of the answers, but there's definitely a lot of really interesting research that's out there that certainly helps give us some ideas of where to start and what we need to investigate further when someone presents. I mean, the, the importance of personalised medicine can't be emphasised enough where we see through the evidence that although, yes, there's an association with D deficiency or insufficient vitamin A um, ingestion, there's definitely some associations there, but it doesn't mean that who presents to you is going to have that particular issue and that's where uh, a good thorough investigation is really important and just keeping all of these factors in mind when treating someone. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The sixth annual Bioceuticals Research Symposium will be held in Melbourne on the 20th to the 22nd of April, 2018. For more information, please click on the Education tab at bioceuticals.com.au. If you're loving our FX Medicine podcasts, please don't forget to share us with your colleagues, family and friends.